for example, when I talk about this research with violinists, with, with any player of any stringed instrument, the response is typically one of, I can't believe it, I've been playing this instrument for 40 years or whatever the case may be, and I've never thought about where the wood for my instrument comes from. And that reaction to me is remarkable. Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Hi, I'm Joe McHugh, and if you have been listening to the Rosin the Bow podcast series, you've heard interviews about the history of the violin, as well as the making, repairing, selling, and collecting of violins. And then there are the interviews with the musicians who play a variety of musical styles on the violin, viola, cello, and bass. In this podcast, we explore the impact violin making has on the natural world. Our guide is Aaron Allen, a professor of musicology and environmental studies at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. Aaron was able to transform my thinking about the instrument I play, and perhaps he will deepen your own appreciation for the trees, animals, and minerals that make possible the instruments for the music we love. My name is Aaron Allen. I'm the director of the Environmental and Sustainability Studies Program at UNC Greensboro. I'm also an associate professor of music in the Department of Music Studies at the School of Music, Theater, and Dance. We are the flagship music school in the UNC system, and my department is the department that is the liberal arts program within the college, within the school. And we teach classes in music theory and music history. I'm trained as a music historian, and I received my PhD from Harvard before coming here. And I did my undergrad degree in environmental studies and in music at Tulane University in New Orleans. Well, I love this idea of the music interest and, of course, environmentalism and the science of that. So going back in your family, tell me what kind of threads or musical interest was there? Actually, in my family, there were very few musical interests. I came to music relatively late in life, and really through my own volition, through experiences that I had that I enjoyed. I had always planned on going into uh, the environmental field. Since I was little, I wanted to be a scientist or, or work in nature in some way. When I got to high school, I wanted to be an environmental activist of some kind because I saw these, these problems in the world that I wanted to do something about. I was very active as an activist in college at Tulane. Uh, I was the head of the environmental group on campus for a few years. But in addition to that life, which I felt was very public, I had a private kind of world of making music and singing and learning about music theory and composing and teaching music. I taught a lot of music theory and I helped people with piano proficiency, but I got into all of that in college. I did not really, I did a little bit of choral work in high school and I did a little bit of band in middle school, but nothing significant. I actually didn't learn how to read music until college. What was the work that your, your, your parents did? Uh, my dad was a construction worker. He was a contractor. And uh, my mom was a, she has a degree in psychology and was a social worker for a while, working with 
mentally ill patients. But then she became an artist and she painted fabrics. But I think that the interest that they had that they gave to me was a love of nature. And that came from, uh, I was born in rural West Virginia. I was, uh, <laughs> it, it sounds... It sounds pretty weird, but I was born in a log cabin. <laughs> I was born in a doctor's office, but I grew up in a log cabin in very rural West Virginia. And when I was five, we moved to Key West, Florida for a variety of personal reasons. Just we wanted to escape the winters and my parents had found it and really loved it. And it was before it had become very developed. But I had a very idealistic childhood in nature uh, in those places. I interviewed this fellow one time for another series I did on storytelling itself. And he was a uh, quite a noted astrologer. <laughs> and a lot of people wouldn't think of that as a form of storytelling, but it really is. Sure, of course, yeah. you know, it's using narratives to explain the chaos and, mm -hmm. and the confusion of reality. And he said when he was young, his parents, his father was in the State Department and uh, kept getting posted at these different embassies around the world. And when he was quite young, they took this ship, ocean liner, across the Atlantic and he was the kind of kid who would always kind of slip away and just do whatever he wanted. And he remembered he was quite young when this happened. But they finally found him, and he was upstairs, you know, on the deck. And it was in the middle of the night. And he told the story uh, just about looking up at the stars and the profound uh, influence that experience had upon him of just the marvel of all these stars. Of course, later he becomes an astrologer. So it was a great, you know, sort of creation myth. But it's the, it's the uh, sort of seminal experience he, he recalled when asked about maybe how he got to where he is. Do you have any memories of, mm. you know, like being in nature in a particular place and time and, and really experiencing nature primarily through your ears? I think that that experience actually is something I may have created later in life. I don't know that I can point to. I can point to a few moments that were particularly profound that I recall of being in nature, being out in the mangrove swamps as a child in Key West, being actually uh, on a canoe in a bayou around New Orleans while I was in college, and having some experiences that really stand out in my mind. But I was already in a place that led me to this path. And I think that the path uh, was created uh, for me through the process of just living in these places. It was background. There was no particular moment that led me somewhere. When it comes to experiencing nature through my ears, I think that also was background to living in West Virginia in a very isolated area with no real anthropogenic human-caused noise in the area, save for when it was very quiet, we could hear in the distance the coal mines the ventilation systems from the coal mines. Otherwise, it was the wind, it was the trees, it was the birds, and it was just the, the everyday sounds of human life in a place that was relatively isolated. So yeah, every now and then the tractor or the automobile or chainsaw or even a television, you know, we weren't that completely isolated and still aren't. But I think that all of those things were just background to me. And they came together, actually here at UNCG, they came together for me. I'd always been interested. I got two degrees, right? In one in music, one in environmental studies in college. And I didn't really plan on connecting them very much. I tried to think about it a little bit, but never really had that opportunity until I came here as a faculty member. And the dean supported me 
in doing that. And so I started writing articles and giving papers and going to conferences, trying to connect these ideas of music and nature. I joined the environmental studies faculty here and eventually uh, just recently became the director of that because I have the experience in the program with, with environmental studies and also experience with music. And so I can really meld those two together from an academic perspective because I meld them together in a personal perspective as well. But my research, uh, I have two different, very, very different areas of research, one in the reception of Beethoven in 19th century Italy, what people thought about Beethoven in a place he never went in a time he was already dead, and then in issues of the environment. And so uh, the issues of the environment as they relate to music. So I've written about how nature is portrayed in music, in compositions. For example, Beethoven's Pastoral Symphony. Mm -hmm. um, how musician activists take up the cause of the environment. I've written an article, for example, on Bruce Coburn and his uh, attitudes about the environment. Uh, but also how the material basis for music culture impacts in both positive and negative ways the environment. So uh, that's led me to working on a book project that I'm working on right now called The Tree That Became a Lute. And it's about the material basis, the natural resources for making music and the issues with sustainability uh, that come up. We interviewed a uh, violin maker in Montpellier, France, Frédéric Chartier, and uh, he has written a book about this theft of this violin some some years ago, the Gibson uh, Stradivari. And, but he basically starts the book and uses as his narrative approach the very cutting of the tree up in the valley, the Fiam Valley, which you've been to and I've been to, and we're going to talk about that, and then sort of each step that leads to the creation of the violin. I thought that was a really good approach to begin to build a foundation for what turns out to be just a great story about right. skullduggery and, mm -hmm. <laughs> and other parts of the human uh, psyche playing themselves out within this world of music. And I think that's a rare approach, actually. Most discussions of musical instruments start maybe in the luthier's workshop, not in the forest. And so one of the kind of things that I'm trying to get people to think about is that our musical instruments have a basis in nature. You made me think of a, of a term. I, we, my wife and I sometimes do radio dramas, and uh, we involve a lot of people in them. And we had one where it took place in the 1800s, and they were going to cut these trees. And it was a great sound effect. And it literally was going to be one of these two-men saws that go back and forth. We had to borrow one for this effect. And this old timer who gave it to us was Scandinavian. And he said, I'd give this to you. And I can't do the accent. <laughs> but he said, we call this a Swedish fiddle. Isn't that great? I love it. And I had thought of that story at this minute. But right, starting with the very cutting of the trees and, uh, well, even go back further, the growing of the trees. Well, that's and that's right. And the places that are preserved in order to do this or not preserved. That's And that's part of the issue. So I think that when, when I, for example, when I talk about this research, with violinists, with, with any player of any stringed instrument, the response is typically one of, I can't believe it, I've been playing this instrument for 
40 years or whatever the case may be, and I've never thought about where the wood for my instrument comes from. And that reaction to me is remarkable. I am a woodworker, and I think that's part of where I got into this interest with particularly the material basis for the connections between music and nature. Because I was realizing this is so much of our musical kind of performing force, right? The, think about the orchestra. Uh, it's all made out of wood. Yes, they're, they're brass instruments. Those are natural materials as well. Those are mined and processed and refined in, in, in ways similar to how trees are are harvested in order to be made into musical instruments. And so there's, I think that when I, for example, when I look at an orchestra on stage, I don't just see musicians and I don't just think about the sound and I don't just think about the artistry uh, involved or the social setting even. I also think about all the connections to the distant places that are represented on that stage. All the people who contributed to making those instruments, the trees that were cut down to make them, the mines that were dug to make them, the energy that was used to make them, the people and the resources necessary for them, the transportation, the impacts on local communities who are not represented in that place. And so it's a complicated, <laughs> it's a complicated event for me to go see any kind of musical performance. And my thinking through that has, of course, been shaped by the research that I've done about trying to find these life stories of musical instruments, of not just the instrument in the hands of a, a wonderful performer who makes us feel beautiful things and, uh, and communicate with each other in really unusual ways and feel part of a community. Those are all wonderful things, and that's what we normally think about when studying music and listening to music and participating in music, and certainly the things that I traditionally thought about. But after thinking more about these life stories and trying to connect music with environmental issues, I, I can only think about all of the, the far-flung connections between nature and culture and between sound and the environment that we are mediating when we're doing music. It's, it's something I've become much more aware of doing this radio series. I interviewed um, a tonewood producer, someone who sells tonewood to the musical instrument community, uh, makers. And he's quite upset with the whole issue of poaching, which has become so widespread and uh, has warped in everyone's understanding of what is what is appropriate, what isn't appropriate, what is sustainable, certainly what's not sustainable. There's trees now in Bosnia, maple trees, one tree that uh, he says can be as much as $100,000 to someone. And that's a tremendous incentive to cut it down, irrespective of any other consideration, the same way we see ivory and and the, and the uh, destruction of the elephant herds. That's right. And it, where does that value come from, really? It's not something inherent in the tree, because that tree is also valuable to squirrels and the watershed and to everybody who breathes the oxygen that it produces, right? And put, trying to put a dollar figure on those ecosystem services is really difficult. Certainly economists have tried it, and there are all kinds of speculations about it, and it's a, it's a valuable exercise. We can't get very specific, certainly not specific like that tree on the market and the actual money that it can uh, provide to the people who cut it. But 
there's cultural values that go into creating that. It's because, for example, we value a violin with a particular pattern on the back, right? That's what a violin should look like. And so there's an expectation as purchasers of the instrument, as audience members, as auctioneers, uh, as, as distributors, uh, all of these people in this, in this chain who have expectations that are guided by culture, not even necessarily the inherent properties of the material, but by what we like and what we feel should be there. And so those, all those, those things contribute to creating value that then causes the tree to be cut. I've been thinking a lot about this, and I think at different ages of human society, we have different drivers of sort of uh, value systems and decision-making, kingship, religion, religious belief. But we are in an age where uh, money has taken on a different character than it ever has. You know, we, we've had warnings about the corruption of money going back to the beginning of time. However, somebody one time was describing this. Uh, they did a special on, uh, on Frontline about the collapse of the financial system in 2008. And it was a four hours, four hours long for Frontline. And they really you know, took apart everything that had happened and who the players were and what was going on. It ends with this helicopter flying over Manhattan on the way out to the Hamptons in the Long Island. One of these uh, fellows who might have done all right, given what happened. And the uh, narrator, and I think, pretty much said, uh, we, have, we have worshipped at the god of finance, and we are now discovering that that god is a cruel god. Something to that effect. And using the word finance rather than money really triggered an idea in my mind. So yes, money, but it's the rationalization, the, the intense rationalization of money that's creating a whole new set of realities for what is going on. And certainly in these interviews I've been doing, I am talking to people who are involved with $20 million, $30 million violins and cellos. And in many cases, although they might lend it to an artist, that's not their primary reason they own this instrument. It's because this is a great way to increase wealth, protect your wealth. You can cross borders with a violin in a fiddle case, and usually it's not an issue, it's your violin. And it's, uh, there's been a whole financial world that has discovered all these values. And of course, doing that is driving everything into a new place and having these environmental impacts, I would imagine. So maybe you could speak to that. Yes. I, oh, absolutely. And I think that, as you brought up earlier, with ivory and elephants, of course, pianos used to, you know, we tickle the ivories, right? You know, when we're talking about a piano. Uh, they used to have keys made out of ivory for its uh, particular physical characteristics and, and beauty. Of course, that was a problem that we realized was we're killing these giant animals that have an important local place in the ecosystem and in a culture, and we're killing them basically for a couple of their overgrown teeth. And for billiard balls. And, and for billiard balls and, and many other products that were, you know, used and still today. And it's, it's, a, it's a significant problem. Of course, with pianos, we've made those connections already and we're not going to keep using ivory for the keys. With the violin family, uh, I think we have an, an example where the instruments do both good and bad. And they do bad, particularly with the bow. 
with the Pernambuco that is primarily used for professional grade bows that are used primarily to play those very high-end instruments such as the strats. Those bows are made out of a wonderful tree, which is actually a, a, a relative of the locust tree, which is a, a pretty common tree in urban areas in the United States. It's a very common tree in Brazil. It's a member of the legume family, one of the most widely diffused species on the planet. Wonderful tree, very hard wood, rot-resistant wood, and widely diffuse in Brazil, well known as the basically the tree that gave Brazil its name. It is the tree that Brazil was named after in order to um, kind of respect the, or reflect rather, the historical importance of the tree to resource exploitation during the colonial period in the 16th and 17th century. And it also makes this dye. It makes this red dye that helped color regal garments. So for example, princes and popes, right? They're, uh, so that upper echelon of society used the wood to make a dye. That dye was replaced in the later 19th century by industrial chemicals, and so it's no longer used for such purposes. But in the 18th century, Tort found some of this wood and was experimenting with it and made a nice bow out of it and had great physical properties for making a, a bow. And this wood was basically stockpiled in Paris and he could just grab a little bit of it. It's not like it was particularly rare or anything. It was, however, imported from the New World and used in that way uh, to make dye, but he discovered it was a great bow making wood as well. And the upshot of that is not that everybody went and cut these trees down just to make bows. It's not an immediate causation. There's a correlation. It's not causation. So it's not that bow makers or violinists are causing the direct destruction of these trees. There's a long history of destruction of cutting down large swaths of the Mata Atlantica where this particular species of the legume uh, that Pernambuco grows it's not that uh, uh, bow makers have necessarily done this, but there's um, widespread deforestation for monocultures of soybean, for raising beef, for the expansion of urban areas, for building roads, all kinds of problems that contribute to the decline of Pernambuco. And now at the Mata Atlantica, which of course is, it's near the Brazilian Amazon, but it's the Amazon gets all of the attention when it comes to issues of deforestation, but the Mata Atlantica is the forest on the coastal area of Brazil, and it uh, is the only place where Pernambuco grows, and it is so it's an endemic species. It doesn't grow anywhere else. You can grow it in plantations. It grows everywhere in urban environments in Brazil because it's the national tree. Every Brazilian knows Pernambuco, and there are a number of indigenous names. Pau Brasil is the... Um, Portuguese name. So there are a number of names for it, and everybody knows this tree. Uh, but it's, you, a, a bow maker has no use for a plantation grown or an urban tree because it's only in the stressful environment, uh, uh, the comp competitive environment of wild nature, where the tree grows in such a way to have the properties that violinists need in a bow. And so human ingenuity to come in and try and create a plantation or to uh, raise the trees doesn't work in this case. We need nature to provide that material for high-quality bows. 
The problem, of course, is that only about 8% of the forest remains and about 5% of the Pernambuco habitat remains. So that's from the historical uh, range of the forests. Today, it's, it's, it's extremely minimal. Again, let me emphasize it's not just musical instruments that do this. It's part of a larger cultural process. But as with elephants, right, if, if you want ivory keys on a piano, <laughs> you're going to be asking for a material that is going to be part of the destruction of elephants. Whether it's the past destruction of it or it's the present or future destruction of the elephants, you're asking for that. So if you're asking for a Pernambuco bow, you're asking to cut down a tree in a wild area that is, is severely endangered, nearly extinct. And so it's part of that process that creates demand for something that increases the value that then would cause poaching. So it, it's a complicated process, and yet it's the instrument of choice. It's the, the tool of choice for playing the violin for high-end violinists. This is the uh, quandary that we... Uh, almost every human being now faces. That's right. You know, if I'm going to walk out of this office and get in my car, even though it's a Prius, right, that oil might have come from the Delta in Nigeria or someplace where I know bad things are going on. We're talking in these microphones right now, and the electricity that's being generated is contributing to, here in North Carolina, I know it's contributing to global warming, even though I'm using it very little bit. Mm-hmm. And using it what I think is for a good good cause. But that suddenly becomes an immoral equation. That's right. Of course, and, every and environmentalist wrestles with this. Right. And I'm curious about this one fact. Before we go back into the specifics, because I'm fascinated by that, you know, how, how these making these instruments and using them impacts very specific ecosystems. There seems to be associated with music. The pursuit of music and the people who do that are musicians, right? As if they as a group, are more sincerely concerned because art brings into us a deeper appreciation of the sacred and if the natural world is the sacred and we, we sense that. And many people will use that bow, that wood, where they can get a very, very good carbon fiber bow. And I've heard stories where a very high-end musician will get a, an excellent carbon fiber bow and for two weeks rave about it. My God, it's so responsive. It's so perfectly balanced. I can do things I didn't even know I could do with my great old French bow. Two weeks later, he says, ah, but the tone isn't the same. And, you know, I love the poetry of that, the, uh, the, the difficult environment in which it grew. And who knows what soulfulness and what is soulfulness. But there's a poetic aspect to all this, too. So um, maybe I'm putting out a question that is not can't be answered, but I'm curious what you think about musicians themselves being a particular group of people that would be more sympathetic to these issues than someone else would say, yeah, great, but I make motorcycles, and whatever the effect is, this is what I love to do. I think that, you know, the idea of musicians resonating with these issues is absolutely right, and I think that musicians will resonate with these ethical and emotional concerns. And I think that poetic element, as you were saying, is certainly part of 
why we do what we do. It's a, a connection that we have and why people like music. Music is seen as, is understood as a good thing inherently, something that bonds people together, that uh, creates beauty, that uh, makes us feel good, that can, can create a cohesiveness that does wonderful things. At the same time, there are, in our modern world, downsides to many of the things that we otherwise see as good. As you say, you know, musicians, you yourself want to do work that does good in the world. I do too. Uh, yet we use products and do things knowingly that they cause problems. And I think that the, there's an ethical distinction to be made here. And I think that this is an important element. If we were ethically pure we would immediately stop using all of the technology that we know has problems, such as Pernambuco bows, such as our gadgets, our technology, our automobiles. We would, we would say, we're ethically pure, I have to stop. We know that they do bad. If we, are, if we have a certain amount of ethical integrity instead, we have to acknowledge those problems and continue to find a way to do good. And I think that that's the distinction, that we, we, we can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good, essentially. That ethical purity isn't necessarily going to help make broad change, because you're going to remove yourself from any kind of possibilities for making change. You may lead a pure, an ethically pure life, but then are you going to really impact others? So the ethical integrity says... For example, we know that we use these gadgets and these tools that cause problems, but let's talk about it and tell people about it and try to come up with alternatives to do things differently or to make amends or to fix the problems that uh, are there that we acknowledge. But, but because we can't fix them if we don't acknowledge them. We can't find a different way if we don't know that the way that we're doing things is problematic. So it's institutions and organizations like the International Pernambuco Conservation Initiative it's those kinds of organizations that can that take this ethically integrative. Um, actually, that's the wrong word. Um, they have ethical integrity. So it's institutions like the IPCI that take the path of ethical integrity by acknowledging there's a problem with the use of Pernambuco and trying to find different ways for people to do it. I think that that's it's an absolutely necessary and valid approach. But I still have to wonder, there's so little Pernambuco left, how are we really going to solve that problem if we don't address the demand that performers place on bow makers and on the Pernambuco trees themselves by encouraging the players to think about changing the way that they do things? I keep coming back to philosophy because these are deeply philosophical questions. And I think that one of the questions is, we have certain ideas that we never question, right? One of those questions for a musician would be, I want the best tone possible. That's right. Right? Wally Shawn wrote a book one, or an article in The New Yorker once when he was saying, I'm sitting around with my friends and they're all saying, I want my kid to go to the best school in New York, the best school in Manhattan. And he, he looked at it and says, well, what do you mean by that? And once you make that statement, well, then only your child's going to go to the best because if it's the best, there have to be others and other kids don't get to go to the best. This idea that we're under some almost compulsion to have the best and create the best tone. I think it's something very deep in us that is reaching for the, for the divine, that somehow if we can get that 
the perfect home, the perfect painting, that we somehow can step out of this realm into that other realm that we're yeah. longing for. Absolutely. And it's that driver that says, I will not be content with a carbon fiber boat mm -hmm. if I can get that fine nuance with this other material. And that's, that's the cultural value that I find in musical instruments that is manifest in the players of the musical instruments. But as my dad likes to say, one man's trash is another man's treasure. And with the best school or the best tone, or the best sound, the best music, we don't always agree. It's a fundamentally personal decision, a personal opinion. And certain tastemakers, however, command a stage, literally, in the case of music, and they can set the standard that others then aspire to, or that others, or that listeners, or, or the, the, those who are simply interested, rather than those who are also players, so listeners, can say, that's the right way to do it, or that's the tone. Uh, but even then, trying to find and compare these between different musicians, different different audiences would come up with different results. And in fact, there have been numerous sound trials. So these are the these have been going on since the early 19th century, particularly in France. And they've continued up to the present. Just last year, you probably know, there was uh, an article published, covered widely in the press, about musicians' preferences for old Italian violins. In this article, the... Uh, basic finding was that blindfolded musicians who did not know which instrument was given to them played a series of uh, uh, old and new instruments and were asked to determine which one they like the best and which one is the Strad. And the results were no better than chance, basically, which is a historical trend in these types of studies that musicians often say, that's the Strad. I know that's the Strad, when in fact it's a new instrument. century colonial map of what is today known as Brazil. 
And what we see is an outline of the eastern portion of the South American continent. And we see some birds in numerous colors. We see some animals. We see some, there's a river running through it. And there's lots of trees. There are also lots of tree stumps. And then there's wood stacked on the ground. And the trees that are represented here are Pernambuco trees. And the people doing the stacking of the wood are indigenous people. And they are preparing this wood. And one of the indigenous people is, uh, a few of them actually, are dressed more than the others. Some of them are not dressed at all. And the ones dressed a little bit more elegantly, one is pointing to the northeast, which is, of course, pointing towards, in this map, pointing towards Europe, and to the ships waiting to take these materials back to Europe. So this is a long-standing history of the relationship between the colonially oppressed and the colonizers in extracting natural resources. Tell me about your journey to the Fian Valley and wh what you were doing there. And what is the Fian Valley, for those who don't know? Sure. So the Fiemme is a, a tiny valley in the province of Trento in northern Italy. It's in the Alps, and it is. Uh, it happens to have the perfect microclimate for growing resonance wood. This is spruce trees that are used to make the soundboards of musical instruments. Not just violins, also guitars, also pianos, and it's it's a wonderful resource because of the climate. The microclimate creates growth ring patterns in the trees that are then harvested to make wood that has the perfect properties for the transmission of sound. And so this was discovered centuries ago and has been studied over the centuries. And scientists still can't really figure out all the things that are just right, why people like it so much. And this is the wood that uh, the great masters in Cremona That's used right. to make That's right. Stradivarius used it, and Amati and Guarneri and all of the great makers used it. They also used other woods. It's not, it's not that this wood was used exclusively, but it was a high-quality wood that they used. And the question becomes, is that there's something physical about the properties of this wood, something that we can study through science to understand about the properties of the wood that make it just right for sound transmission? Or is it that we've developed cultural values that simply attach us to this certain kind of sound that is produced with this wood? I don't know the answer to that. I don't know that anybody can really come up with the answer to that. Uh, I think it's some of both. And that's it. So it's not real. It's not an either or question. It's a both and, really. At different times, in different places, with different people, it will simply be different. And I don't know that we can ever resolve that question. But what we do know is that in the Fiemme, in this uh, particular microclimate, in the Panaveggio, the particular forest in the, the cultural region known as the Fiemme, there are natural, physical, environmental aspects and cultural institutions that have provided over centuries the perfect place for creating these trees that are used in musical instruments. And the sound that results has been valued by people all over the world. And today, people still want to use this wood to create their musical instruments. And performers value this wood 
and the masters such as Stradivarius who use this wood to make their instrument. And so they value that particular kind of sound. Now by valuing that sound for music, they're also valuing the forests. And so it's not just musical instruments that help preserve the forest, but there's a long history of cultural institutions that have helped preserve these forests. But essentially, the Panaveggio is a productive forest that has been around for centuries. Nearly a millennium of sustainable forestry can be traced in this place. And it's not, again, not just musical instruments, but all these cultural institutions and the natural environment that is made for this possibility. We had the opportunity to visit this area of Italy. And uh, what we discovered about the forest was that it has been managed since medieval times by this form of government that is really self-government. Uh, in fact, they, they would make jokes about Rome having really very little right. to do with what they do. And they've seemed to have this idea of sustainability very early on and have maintained this wonderful forest. That's absolutely right. And I think that it's a lesson we can extract from this history. That is that external forces telling a local people how to manage their resource don't always work well. But if the, the people can manage their resources indigenously with their own practices and their own values, then they can do a good job. And this is a, a case maybe to think about in comparison between the Panaveggio in Italy, the sustainable tradition for nearly a millennium, and the unsustainable exploitative situation in Brazil, where there's very little Pernambuco left, it's not that some international group needs to come in and tell the Brazilians how to manage their forests. It's that the local people who have still some control over these forests need to manage them in a way that they see fit. And I think what's interesting is that we have two models here that deal with the same musical instrument. Brazil is huge. The Penaveggio is tiny. The Brazilian story tells us about the bow that's been exploitative and is unsustainable. And the Panavegian story, the, the Fieme story, tells us about the soundboard for the violin that is a sustainable tradition. And what's interesting is that they're part of the same instrument. You need the bow to play the violin. What's so interesting is the violin is almost a uh, poster child for globalization. Hmm. It has traveled all over. And right. we we're talking about tone again. What is it about that tone? Is it a tone that we just agree is a tone we want? But as soon as it seems like it's introduced to cultures like in Japan or China, they embrace that tone. And are they just embracing it because they still are looking up to Western European culture? I'm not sure that's the case. But there's something about it. I think that, again, it's a both and. It's not an either or. It's not... And there are a lot of reasons. There's certainly a, a desire to connect with the West. There's something inherent about the, the music that people are attracted to. There's something inherent about the object that allows people to adapt it to their own styles of music so that even if the, the Western classical tradition is not what they're aspiring to at all, it's just something that is flexible enough as a, an instrument that connects with people in a particular way through its particular range of sounds and its particular portability that uh, allows other people to pick it up and do with as they as they see fit in a local culture. So absolutely, it's it's gone everywhere from Appalachian, United States to rural India. And I think, though, what's 
distinct, what I would maybe distinguish there is that when we talk about something like tone, we, it's, it's a very vague word that is not really something that we can quantify or, or put our finger exactly on. Because we can talk about tone in a very general way, and we can talk about it in a very particular way. And the particular way is something that's really subjective and personal. Right? We can talk about it generally as talk about the tone being different of, from a, a violin to a, a tuba, for example. And we can talk about it, though, from a very personal way as the musician saying, you know, I'm just not getting the same tone out of this instrument that I got out of the other instrument, or this bow out of that bow, or whatever they can, or this room is more acoustically live than that room, and so I get a different tone, or whatever. There's That's very particular to the individual. And it's these sound trials then that there are problems with many of the sound trials that the way that the studies are done don't take in a, into consideration, cannot, really cannot consider all of the variables that are so subjective and so particular to place and climate and time of day and all these other things that musicians do. And so when in any musical performance, there are going to be differences and different feelings. That's what's wonderful about it as well. So trying to study tone preferences from a scientific perspective is almost doomed to failure. I don't I'm not I haven't really seen any good examples of it yet. And yet at the same time it's telling us something about how inherently changeable, fickle, varied, diverse our our opinions are throughout different places and people. And we'd like to think as musicians that we're making decisions based upon the aesthetic of what we're doing in in and by itself. But looking at market forces. Okay, so we have these microphones right now. Well, that has changed everything because um, the sustainable movement is trying to look at local sourcing, right? Why drive your tomatoes all the way from Southern California to uh, in North Carolina or wherever from Florida because of the impact upon the environment, just the carbon footprint. But once you have recording technology and everyone has heard that remarkable musician and that remarkable musician now can be heard everywhere and, and that sets the standard Every musician has to compete with that in the local right. market to get gigs and to live. So they have to be very good at what they do, and they have to have a certain sound. And often, and this is a phenomenon that's truly in the violin world, they have to have an instrument that often has this sort of mystical uh, association to play at a certain level. I mean, they will advertise certain soloists as having this particular strad from 17-whenever. And that's part of what makes that person more marketable. So these market forces are very real. I think that you're absolutely right. And the market forces ascribe particular kinds of monetary value. And they're a cultural, let's say, uh, the, the cultural market, right? There's a cultural market that provides a certain amount of, some, we call it cultural cachet or cultural values with individual musicians and their instruments that... That are, that's information behind the sound, behind the noise that informs the way that we then interpret that sound and how we value it. And so we say, ah, they have a strad, they must be good, they, right? It's somebody who's worth it, right? The, and I think that we can do a lot of good in that way as musicians. We're getting back to our, our thinking about wanting to do good in the world, knowing what some of the problems. Those cultural values can be used for good, to tell the story about uh, the Fieme, to tell the story also about the Mata Atlantica and the declining stocks of Pernambuco. 
and we can use then that that literal stage that music has and that comes along with cultural values to tell those stories. The upshot then is that we want to do something about it and change it if there's a problem. Of course, we want to preserve it if there's something that we're doing well, as with the, the Panavegia. But if there's a problem, as with the Mata Atlantica and the Pernambuco, we want to try and change that. How do we change that? And I don't know that I have the answer, but I know that there are some cultural values that are not so much informed by aesthetics, but they are informed by economics. And by saying, well, when you're, for example, to a, to a student in the violin studio, when you're grown up enough or when you're good enough or when you really make it, you're going to get a Pernambuco bow too. But right now you're going to use an imitation because you're not there yet. So it creates something for the student to aspire to. They say, I've made it. I get my Pernambuco bow now. And that's a problem because that creates a different kind of value for the bow that creates ugliness in the world, that creates a problem. And so I think that it's in finding where we want to continue to advocate for doing something well and where we want to change the way that we do things. And I think that education is one of those places. And the desires for certain musicians to appeal to certain kind of economic instincts as opposed to aesthetic instincts. I think this idea, you know, McLuhan and the the medium is the message. I, I think this is what you're getting to, and I think we should do this. That musicians, as they perform, should talk about their instrument, talk about where it came from and why they have this instrument, maybe some choices they've made to have that instrument. I, I and know, I think going, they have to do it in regard to the, the natural resources that provided it, not just the exactly. famous maker or oh, the yeah. price that they paid for it. Well, I'm thinking about, you were talking again about the Fiamme Valley, where they will ask these very famous musicians to come up and play a concert with among the trees. That's right. And then uh, in some cases, they have a tree and they get to own this tree. Of course, they're not cutting that tree down, but their name's associated with that tree. But, you know, it's trying to find through ritual what some people might think is just odd sentimentality or something, but it, I don't think so. I think we, you know, so many things we do are ritual as individuals and as people. And a lot of times we don't recognize it ritual, but it is. And so to come up with rituals that, uh, that musicians could participate in that would communicate what, what's at stake and what we could do about what they do because you know, they can do the benefit concert for global warming or to save this particular ecosystem. But they're also using instruments that possibly, you know, a friend of mine um, provides wood to guitar makers. Mm. And he said, uh, it's the guitar makers, surprisingly, who are absolutely will not take a piece of wood with any blemish in it, even though it would have nothing to do with the tone of the guitar. That's right. It has to be perfect, which means how many trees you get cast aside, all the wastage that's involved. And here's what's, what I found so profoundly... Uh, the, here's a, here is a statistic that really drives home the point about how special the wood from the Fiume is. In the 1990s, the, data, the last data that I have access to from the Fiume, of the harvest there, there was, they actually harvested less wood than the trees added through their natural processes. So the forest is actually growing as they're continuing to harvest the trees. About 50% of the wood was sold to be processed elsewhere. About a third of the wood was of a particular grade that they processed locally. And 14 or so percent was high quality 
would. Of that 14%, less than 1% is actually usable to make high-quality musical instruments. That is a tiny fraction of the trees cut down. That's, so really, if you're thinking, you're saying, well, this is just a drop in the bucket. You know, how can musical instruments make a difference? But that 1% of 14% can only come about through harvesting such a high quantity of, of wood in the first place. And that's why when uh, a luthier, particularly an Italian luthier, says uh, her instrument is fatto di fieme, it's made of fieme, it's made of the place, it's... It's kind of like a, a local uh, luthier in, in Greensboro saying, this instrument is made of Greensboro. It's that kind of idea. When she says, fatto di fiemme, she's ascribing to that instrument that it is really special. It, it takes some very small percentage of really a, a unique place and makes it into something even more special. That is the musical instrument. And so that process of valuation comes from a natural resource basis. And I think that by telling that kind of story, musicians can certainly create a respect for the thing, for the, 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 the instrument, a respect for the process of music making, a respect for music, but also a respect for the place that's f distant from the audience experiencing it. So as we kind of bring this to a close, unfortunately because of time, and time is really a big element in here because you either think in long-term time and care about the next generation, the next generation of not just human beings, but also other species. That, that's right. It's an that, important precept of sustainability, absolutely. Yeah, that, that rely on these ecosystems uh, rather than this uh, short-term Let's get it all now. Economic quarterly profits kind of approach. Yeah. And also, again, I, I still think it's that reaching for what we perceive as outside of life. It's, it's absolutes. That this is sort of only a way station. And if you gave my choice, I'd go there. I mean, you know, really, uh, there's something very deep in the, in the human psyche about this troubled relationship we have with the natural world as well as with time. At the same time, we don't exist if we don't have the natural world. We don't have clean air. We don't have clean water. We don't have clean food. We don't exist. It's, it's that simple. And it's the same for making music. If we don't have the natural world, world to provide us with this, the raw materials for this, we're not going to have our musical traditions. And so it's, you, you think, well, an iPod or, some, or a microphone or a computer, these things are are not of the natural world. Yes, they are. They're made out of petroleum. They're made out of minerals. They're made out of ores that come from the natural world. Human ingenuity puts them together to resemble something that's not found in nature, which is the same process that happens with the violin, right? It's, it's, a, it's a, uh, a, an agglomeration of natural parts. It doesn't look like anything found in nature because human ingenuity did that. So we tend to lose track of thinking of this thing as being part of nature. And we think it's only part of culture. But that creates a binary that doesn't exist. Well, you have this older idea, and it's been around a long time, and certainly promoted by certain institution, uh, religious you know, institutions, that we're body and soul, we're body and spirit, and that really only the spirit ultimately matters because that's mm -hmm. what's going to live forever. And therefore, there's this separation. And uh, so what's in the physical world is just you know to be dealt with, but it's not... In fact, possibly where the divine resides. And then there's other people who are saying, wait a minute. Everything you're experiencing is, is your body. And it is the experience. It is what is divine. 
Uh, just a couple last words about Ebony. What's your thoughts about where that's going? Yeah, I think Ebony and, well, and guitars, um, Rosewood, uh, of course, we could, that's a whole other discussion with a, a whole other set of issues, of course, particularly with the things that have happened in the, the press in the United States the past few years with um, illegally sourced wood and, and things like that, the, the Greenpeace Music Wood campaign and these kinds of things, very much focusing on guitars. I think also with Ebony, with Blackwood, with Impingo, there are, are numerous woods, uh, mahogany, rosewood, all kinds of others that are all used in various musical instrument traditions. All these different woods can tell a, a story similar to the one told by Pernambuco. What I think is special about the violin is that we can also tell a story that's positive. So not just the negative story of exploitation from ivory to ebony to rosewood that, that happens in those, uh, and, and it's an important story to tell because we've got to stop those problems, but the violin also tells us a, a story a, a su of success, of sustainability, of a positive story, of actually preserving a forest and traditional ways of life and natural resources for something that gives great pleasure to people and great joy and connects them to something bigger. And so I think we have to tell both of those stories. And that's why it's a both and and not an either or approach. There's not, it's not either this way or that way. It's not that we have to give up everything. It's, this gets us back to the idea of the ethical purity versus ethical integrity. If we were ethically pure, it would be an either or. It's the right way or the wrong way, and that's it. But if we're going to take the the approach of ethical integrity, then it's a, a it's a both and, and we need to find the the right mix of of both and how we're going to do them. And I guess a big question that remains out there is often these large environmental questions really almost can't be dealt with at the personal level that's right. as much as we would like to believe we could, but that doesn't absolve us of taking some responsibility. That's why music is such a great way for approaching it, too, because music is a community activity. Right, but we have such a funny understanding now through the agency of government and policy, you know, which is really how we self-govern ourselves, whether it's up in, in the Alps in Italy, which is government, mm -hmm. oh, sure, self-government. Sure. We'd like to believe democracy is a form of self-government. But we have developed a very strange idea about the arts, and uh, we approach the arts in, in a way that they're, I, I'm not sure, it's kind of a, uh, I don't know what I would call it. It's almost absurdist in the way we hold up art, and we, we, we certainly reward certain artists in our culture. With and yet as soon as there's a problem, fortunes. we cut the arts, and as soon as, soon exactly. as we can dissociate from it, we dissociate from it. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is where my work in ecomusicology is so meaningful to me, because I see, and, and I, I, I like to think to others as well, um, you're here, we're talking about it, and that the approach of ecomusicology, of connecting, mu using music as, uh, as a, a music and sound, as a way of connecting human culture and society with the natural environment, and finding the problems and possibilities uh, of the human nature relationship as mediated through sound and music. I think that that approach gets us to analyze the problems and hopefully come up with some solutions for the way that our world works and the place of music and the arts in it. When I talk about this, I talk about ethical beauty, and that's the idea of eth ethical purity versus ethical integrity and how we manage that relationship. When we talk about ethical beauty, 
This is thinking about, well, it's helpful actually to go back to an ancient Greek concept of kalon, K-A-L-O-N. And it's the idea that something is both beautiful and ethically good. So it's, n- it's not an either or, and it's not just beauty, and it's not just ethically good, but it's, that it's both together. And I think that when we contemplate these eco-musicological issues, when we think about the relationships between music, culture, and nature, we are forced to engage with a complex ethical question that relates to this philosophical concept of Kalon. That is, if we want something to be truly beautiful, it also has to be good. So when I look at the orchestra on stage and I see destroyed forests and mined landscapes and disposed of people, I don't see the orchestra then as Kalon. I may hear it as nice sounds and think that the music is beautiful, but I can't find the ethical goodness in it. And so that, for me, that lens of analysis through Callon, through trying to think about aesthetics, to think about the arts through what is both aesthetically pleasing and ethically good and balancing them, that's, a, that's an important challenge that I think that we have to take on. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music and interlude music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. And let me finish with a quote from Leo Tolstoy. One of the first conditions of happiness is that the link between man and nature not be broken.